Chapter 9 of The Astonishing History of Troy Town by Sir Arthur Thomas Quillacooch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 9 of A Town That Would Laugh at the Great and How a Dull Company Was Cured by an Irish Song. We left the Mrs. Buzzer engaged in rowing the papa homewards. The three queens, as they steered King Arthur to Avilion, can have been no sadder pageant. It is true that Mrs. Buzzer grieved for no Excalibur, but the Admiral had lost his cocked hat. Picture to yourself that procession, the journey past the jetties, the faces that grinned down from overhanging hulls, or looked out hurriedly at casements and grew pale, the blue-jerseyed Trojan lounging on the quay and pausing in his whistle to stare, the Trojan maidens gazing with arrested needle, the shipwrights dropping mallet and tarpot, the ferrymen resting on their oars, the makers of ship's biscuit rushing out with aprons flying to see the sight, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick-maker, each and all agog. Then imagine the Olympian mirth that ran along the waterside when Troy saw the joke and, hand on hip, laughed with all its lungs. But even this was not the worst. No, nor the crowd of urchins that followed from the landing-stage and cheered at intervals. It was when Admiral Buzzard looked up and spied the face of Mrs. Goodwin Sandys at an upper window of the bower that the cup of his humiliation indeed brimmed over. Mrs. Buzzer, titivating at the mirror, heard the stir, and, presentient of evil, rushed downstairs. She saw her lord restored to her, dear, but damp. Yet she nor swooned nor uttered cry. She simply sat violently and suddenly down upon the hall-chair, and piteously stared. "'Emily, get up!' she did so. "'You are wet, my love,' she ventured timorously. "'Wet, woman! Is this the time for airy persiflage?' "'My love,' replied Mrs. Buzzer meekly, "'nothing was further from my thoughts.' The Admiral glared upon her for a moment, but the retort died upon his lips. He flung his hands out with an appealing gesture, and something like a sob. "'Emily!' he cried hoarsely. "'Troy has laughed at me again. Put me to bed!' Oh, forgiving heart of woman! In a moment her arms were about him, and her tears mingling with the general dampness of the Admiral's costume. Then, having wept her fill, she smiled a little, dried her eyes, and put the Admiral to bed. Out of doors, Troy still laughed at the mishap. The whole story was soon related, with infinite humour, by the unfilial Sam. Down at the Manor War, in the bar-parlour, for seven days it formed the sole topic of discussion. And Mr. Moggridge, who ought to have respected Sophia's father, even wrote a humorous ode upon the theme beginning, Ye gods and little fishes, and full of the quaintest conceits. For seven days, from dawn to nightfall, the river off Kitt's house was crowded with boatloads of curious gazers, and the steam tug company, limited, neglected its serious business to run special excursions to the scene of the catastrophe. The Trojan maidens especially would stare at the notice by the half-hour, that being the time allowed by the steam-tug company, and hope, with much blushing and giggling, to catch a glimpse of Mr. Fogo. But the hermit remained steadily indoors. Meanwhile the Admiral sulked in bed and nursed his ill-humour. On Tuesday he was strangely softened and quiet, but on Wednesday he recovered and began to bully his wife as fiercely as ever. On Thursday he broke the bell-rope again, and the servant gave warning. On Friday he threatened to make his will, and refused his food. On Saturday he was still fasting. 
On Sunday he ate voraciously, drank four glasses of grog, and threw the wash-hand basin out of the window. On Monday Mrs. Buzzer revolted, and took herself off with the girls to Miss Limpany's party. Yes, Miss Limpany had mustered courage to put on her best brooch and call it the bower with Lavinia. Nor did her daring end here. It took the form of a little three-cornered note on that very evening. On the next morning, Mr. and Mrs. Goodwin Sandys accepted. "'Have great pleasure in accepting,' read Miss Limpany to her sister. "'The very words! I'm sure it's most affable.' "'We must have cheesecakes, the famous cheesecakes, of course,' objected Miss Lavinia. "'And a dish of trifles, and jellies, and, oh, Priscilla!' "'What, Lavinia? Do you think a tipsy cake would be unbecoming?' Miss Limpany knit her brows over this bold proposal. "'I disapprove of the name,' she said. "'It has always seemed to me a trifle <laughs> fast, if I may call it so. "'Still, we need not mention its name at supper, "'and the taste is undeniably grateful. "'But, Lavinia, I was thinking of a more important matter. "'Who are to be asked?' "'Why not everybody, Priscilla Dea?' "'The Simpsons, for instance. "'It is true his father was a respectable solicitor, "'and even mayor of Devonport, I have heard. "'But Mr. Simpson's taste in badinage "'is such as I cannot always approve. "'It is very well in Troy here, where everybody knows them, "'but the Goodwin Sandys are certain to be most particular. "'And, Lavinia, that crimson gown of hers!' "'It is bright,' assented Miss Lavinia. "'And the Saunders! What a pity the girls cannot be invited without the boys!' "'The boys have always come before, Priscilla!' Miss Limpany groaned. "'To meet an honourable Lavinia!' The leaven was working. However, on the following Monday, everybody was assembled in the little drawing-room. The vicar was there, in evening dress. The doctor and his wife, Mr. Simpson and Mrs. Simpson, in the crimson gown, the Saunders boys in carpet-slippers, at sight of which Miss Limpany went hot and cold by turns, the Mrs. Buzzer in book-muslin with ultramarine sashes and bronze shoes laced sandal-wise, their mother in green satin and deadly terror, lest the Admiral's voice should penetrate the party wall. Mr. Muggridge was frowning gloomily in a corner at some humorous story of Sam Buzzer's telling. In short, with the exception of their Admiral, all Trojan society had gathered to do honour to the newcomers. Miss Limpany, nervously toying with her best brooch, rose in a flutter as the door opened and admitted them. "'So sorry we are late, but the clocks at the bower have not yet recovered from their journey.' Mrs. Goodwin Sandys gazed calmly about her. There was a rustle throughout the room. Two pink spots appeared on Miss Limpany's cheeks. She stumbled in her words of welcome. The vicar frowned and looked puzzled. Mrs. Goodwin Sandys wore a low-necked gown.' It was a shock, but it passed. She was wonderfully pretty, all admitted, in her gown of a rich amber satin draped with delicate folds of black lace. Around her white throat a diamond necklace glistened. How well I can remember her as she stood there toying with a button of her glove, and how mean and dowdy we all looked beside this glittering vision. The Honourable Frederick Augustus Hythe Goodwin Sandys, meanwhile, stared at us all calmly but firmly through his eyeglass. I saw young Horatio Saunders meet that gaze and sink into his carpet-slippers. I saw Mr. Muggeridge frown terribly and cross his arms. Sam Buzzer came forward. "'Ah, how do you do? How do you do, Mrs. Goodwin Sandys? Looking round for the governor? He's been in bed for a week.' I think we all envied Samuel Buzzer at this moment. 
Oh, nothing serious, I hope, drawled Mr. Goodwin Sandys. Serious? <laughs> Haven't you heard? Sam, dear, expostulated Mrs. Buzzer. All right, mother, he can't hear, and Sam plunged into the story. The ice was broken. In a few moments a whist party was made up to include the Honourable Frederick, and Miss Limpany breathed more freely. Mr. Moggridge was led up by Sam, and introduced. "'Ah, indeed, Mr. Moggridge, I have been so longing to know you.' Sam looked a trifle vexed. The poet simpered that he was happy. "'Of course I have been reading Ivy Leaves. So mournful, I thought them, yet somehow so attractive. How did you write it all?' Mr. Moggridge confessed amiably that he didn't quite know. "'Let me see, those lines beginning, "'Oh, give me wings to—' "'I forget for the moment how it goes on.' "'To fly away,' suggested the bard. "'Ah, exactly, to fly away. "'So simple. "'Just what one would wish wings for, you know. "'It struck me very much when I read it. "'When did you think of it, Mr. Moggridge?' "'The poet blushed and began to look uncomfortable. "'Ah, you are reticent. "'Excuse me, I ought not to probe a poet's soul. "'Still I should like to be able to tell my friends.' The, the, the fact is, stammered Mr. Moggridge, I, I, I thought of them in my bath. Mrs. Goodwin Sandys leaned back and laughed, a pretty rippling laugh that shook the diamonds upon her throat. Sam guffawed, and by this action sprang that little rift between the friends that widened before long into a gulf. I shall ask you to copy them into my album. I always speak of my alarm when I meet one. This was said with a glance full of compensation. Mr. Moggridge tried to look very leonine indeed. Across the room another pair of eyes gently reproached him. Never before had he tarried so long from Sophia's side. Poor little heart, beating so painfully beneath your dowdy muslin bodice. It was early yet for you to ache. "'Ah, Dick Cheder, knew him well,' came in the sonorous tones of the Honourable Frederick from the whist-table. "'So you were at college with him, first cousin to Lord Stilton.' Get the title if he only outlives the old man. Good fellow, Dick. But drinks. Dear me, said the vicar, I am sorry to hear that. He was wild at Christchurch, but nothing out of the way. Why, I remember at the Aylesbury Grinds. Miss Limpany, who did not know an Aylesbury Grind from a Brampton lecture, yet detected an unfamiliar ring in the vicar's voice. He fought a Wilshire, pursued the vicar, just before riding in a race. "'Rolling-stone, his horse was, and Cheddar's eyes closed before the second fence. "'Tom, he called for me. I was on a mare called Barmaid.' "'I ask you to guess the amazement that fell among us. "'He, our vicar, riding a mare called Barmaid?' "'Miss Limpany cast her eyes up to meet the descent of the thunderbolt. "'The Lord Ballarat was riding, too,' the vicar went on, "'and young Tom Beecham, some of the bishop, died of D.T. out of Malta with the ninety-ninth interpolated the Honourable Frederick. "'So I heard, poor fellow. Three-bottle Beecham, we called him. I put him to bed many a time when—' It was too much. "'In the great exhibition of 1851,' began Miss Priscilla severely. But at this moment a dreadful rumbling shook the room. The chandeliers rattled, the eggshell china danced upon the what-not, and a jarring sensation suddenly ran up the spine of every person in the company. "'It's an earthquake!' shouted the Honourable Frederick, starting up with an oath. Miss Limpity thought an earthquake nothing less than might be expected after such language. Louder and still louder grew the rumbling, until the very walls shook. Everybody turned to a ghastly white. 
the vicar's face bore eloquent witness to the reproach of his conscience. I, I think it must be thunder, he gasped. Or a landslip, suggested Sam Buzzer. Or a paroxysm of nature, said Mr. Muggeridge, though nobody knew what he meant. Or the end of the world, hesitated Mr. Goodwin Sandys. I beg your pardon, interposed Mrs. Buzzard timidly, but I think it may be my husband. Is your husband a volcano, madam? snapped Mr. Goodwin Sandys, rather sharply. Mrs. Buzzer might have answered, yes, with some colour of truth, but she merely said, I think it may be his double bass. My husband is apt in hours of depression to seek the consolation of that instrument. But, my dear madam, what is the tune? I, I think, she faltered, I am not quite sure, but I, I rather think it is the dead march in Saul. There was no doubt about it. The notes by this time vibrated piteously through the party wall, and with their awful solemnity triumphed over all conversation. Tones became hushed, as though in the presence of death, and the vicar, in his desperate attempts to talk, found his voice chained without mercy to the slow foot of the dirge. He tried to laugh. <laughs> this is too absurd. <laughs> tum, tum, tibby, tum. The effort ended in ghastly failure. Thrum, thrum, tiddy thrum, went the admiral's instrument. Miss Limpley grew desperate. Sophia, she pleaded, pray sing us one of your cheerful ballads. Sophia looked at Mr. Muggridge. He had always turned over the pages for her so devotedly. Surely he would make some sign now. Alas, all his eyes were for Mrs. Goodwin's Andes. I will try, with something dangerously like a sob. She stepped to the collard at a pace remorselessly timed to the dead march, and chose her ballad, a trifle of Mr. Moggridge's composition. It would reproach him more sharply than words, she thought. A cloud of angry tears blurred her sight as she struck the tinkling prelude. A month ago Lysander prayed to Jove, to Cupid and to Venus. Thrum, 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 went the double bass next door. Mr. Moggridge looked up. How thin and reedy Sophia's voice sounded to-night. He had never thought so before. That he might die if he betrayed a single vow that passed between us? Sweetly touching, murmured Mrs. Goodwin Sandys. Sophia pursued. O oh, careless gods, to hear so ill, and cheat the maid on you relying, for false Lysander's thriving still, and tis Corinna lies a-dying. Is that all? asked Mrs. Goodwin Sandys, as Sophia, with flushed cheeks, left the piano. That is all, a little effort not worth. Oh, it is yours. But, with a sweet smile, I ought to have guessed. You must write a song for me one of these days. Do, do, do you sing? cried the delighted Mr. Moggridge. Sam, who had been waiting for a chance to speak, shouted across the room, "'I say, Miss Limpany, Mrs. Goodwin Sandys will sing if you ask her.' After very little solicitation, and with none of the coyness common to amateurs, she seated herself at the instrument, quietly pulled off her gloves, and dashed without more ado into a rollicking Irish ditty. "'Be easy and list to a tune, the song of bold Tim the Dragoon, sure twice he'd never miss to be still in a kiss.' or a brace by the light of the moon, a rune with a wink at the man in the moon. Really, murmured Miss Limpany. The keys of the decorous collard clashed as they had never clashed before. The guests, at first shocked and then startled, began to be carried away with the reckless swing of the music. The vicar stared for a moment, and then began gradually to nod his head to the measure. 
"'You must sing the last line in chorus, please,' said Mrs. Goodwin Sandys from the piano, "'with a wink at the man in the moon.' It was sung timidly at first. Nothing daunted, the performer plunged into the next verse. "'Rest his soul in the arms of old Nick, for he's gone from the land with a quick, but he's still making love to the ladies above, and be jabbers, he'll take em the thrick. A wick, never fear, but he'll take em the thrick.' There was no doubt this time. By the spirit of her mad singing, by some demon that rode upon her full and liquid voice, the whole company seemed possessed. Miss Limpity looked furtively towards the vicar. He was actually joining in the chorus. And what a chorus! She put her middened palms to her ears. Such a shout it was that went up. "'Tis by Tim the dear saints will set shore, and will threat him to whisky galore, for they've only to sip but the tip of his lip, and be dad they'll be asking for more. Ashore, by the pirates they be shouting encore. It was no longer an assembly of dull and decent citizens. It was a room full of lunatics yelling the burden of this frantic Irish song. Laughingly, Mrs. Goodwin Sandys rested her fingers on the keys and looked around. These stolid Trojans had caught fire. There was the little doctor, purple all above his stock. There was the vicar with inflated cheeks and a hag-ridden stare. There was Mr. Moggridge snapping his fingers and almost capering. There was Miss Limpany, with her underjaw dropped and her eyes agape. They were charmed, bewitched, crazy. Mrs. Goodwin Sandys saw this and broke into a silvery laugh. The infection spread. In an instant the whole room burst into a peal, a roar. They laughed until the tears ran down their cheeks. They held their sides and laughed again. She had them at her will. There was no more wonder after this. At supper the talk was furious and incessant. Miss Lavinia spoke of a tipsy cake and never blushed. The vicar took wine with everybody and told more stories of three-bottle Beecham. Even Sophia laughed with the rest, although her heart was aching, for still her poet neglected her and hung with her brother on the lips of Mrs. Goodwin Sandys. I saw him bring the poor girl's cloak in the hall afterwards and receive the most piteous of glances. I doubt if he noticed it. Outside, the Admiral's double bass was still droning the dead march to Miss Limpany's Laurestinus Grove. It was the requiem of our decorum. Long after I was in bed that night, I heard the voice of Mr. Bogridge trolling down the street. "'And be jabbers, he'll take em the thrick!' Mrs. Goodwin Sandys had taught us the trick, indeed. End of chapter 9